Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Medi Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Welcome to the Society for American Soccer History's SASH session with Dr. Kelsey Ervick, author of the graphic memoir, The Keeper, Soccer, Me, and the Law That Changed Women's Lives. The Keeper is Dr. Ervick's fourth book, and she is currently a professor of English and creative writing at Indiana University, South Bend. Founded in 1993, SASH works to promote, facilitate, and disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the U.S. You can find us on the web at ussoccerhistory.org and on social media with our Facebook and Twitter accounts. If you'd like to join the society or renew your membership, please visit our website and do so through the Join SASH tab. While SASH's president, Tom McCabe normally hosts these book discussions. Tom has kindly asked me to step off the subs bench and onto the field for this one. So in our social media climate of today, it can sometimes be a fraud experience, but other times you can have some fortuitous uh, connections. A friend of mine who'd recently written a personal memoir posted a picture on Instagram of himself with other writers at a book event in Kentucky. Uh, I saw that picture and on the, the table, there was a soccer book. And as I zoomed in on that soccer book a little bit, I saw that it was clear that this book would incorporate plenty of history into that storytelling. When I got the keeper, I wasn't sure whether I should classify the book as an art book or a sport book or what, because the visual expression was so impressive. And, but I did know that it would be important for Dr. Ervick to speak with Sash as her incorporation of history, social justice, and her experiences of growing up in the US playing soccer was perfect for Sash's uh, goal of disseminating information about the soccer history in the United States. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to turn the session over to Dr. Kelsey Ervick. And once she is finished, we'll do a Q&A session as well. Dr. Irving. Thank you so much, Chuck. Uh, thank you, Tom, Zach, and the Society for American Soccer History. I'm so pleased to be here. Um, when I received an email from Chuck inviting me to do this, I was like, I'm not a soccer historian. Um, but in fact, I kind of did have to become one to work on this book. So it's been a pleasure to to learn some of that history. And I'm excited to to share what I what I learned with some of you and probably from some probably from some of you. Um, I referred to the SASH website, I consulted it and um, and some of the fellow people I can see on the screen who are here. So it's really an honor to be here and share this. Um, so, so my book, The Keeper, is, as Chuck said, it's my fourth book. And my first three books had nothing to do with soccer, but a lot to do with women's history. And so um, I'm thinking, so this was kind of this natural transition where I began writing, uh, looking back to my own history as a girl growing up in sports and soccer. And 
and then thinking about how that fit in with like larger questions in women's history. So as I worked on the keeper, I had like three key questions that I was exploring. Um, the first one was kind of like, how did I go from a three sport athlete, soccer player to becoming a writer and professor, and especially being a writer and like an artist that's just seemed like two very different identities. And I was kind of looking, trying to think about how they connected and what the intersections were, because I always saw them as pretty different. Um, the second one, second question that I was exploring was, I wanted to know more about the effects that Title IX had on my life as a woman coming up in sports um, and as a girl coming up in sports. Um, Title IX uh, came into law in 1972, so I'm just a little bit older than it, and we came up together. And so I'm gonna. So I was wondering about those effects. Um, and the third question was um, thinking about my interest in women's history and my experiences as an athlete. Uh, growing up as a girl, just the special um, and unique uh, issues that women athletes face and the challenges that we've faced over time. So, so those are kind of the three main questions I was exploring and um, that I'm going to now share with you from the book. So let me go ahead and pull up my slides. Um, so that is the cover of my book on the left which has me kind of standing in front as a keeper and a team that I have assembled from throughout history. Some are athletes, some are activists, politicians, et cetera. Um, and, and one is a former teammate. So, um, so I put together my own team of women across history. Um, and then that's me on the right when I was a goalkeeper at Xavier University. Um, so, as I was saying, like starting with my own experiences of thinking about um, what what I faced growing up and 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 just some of the things that I w went through or that were challenges that I faced. So I want to think first about like being um, a girl athlete in the 1970s and like what that meant. Um, so that's the early years of Title IX. I I didn't hear of Title IX for a long time, but when I was a young girl. Um, what I really wanted to do was be a wide receiver, like my idol, Lynn Swan of the Pittsburgh Steelers. So, um, so here are two images of girls sports in the 1970s. So that's me on the left. I'm wearing a New York Giants helmet because we lived in New Jersey early on, but we'd moved to Pittsburgh. And by then Lynn Swan was my idol. I wanted to be a wide receiver, but, um, Football was not and still is not really accessible to girls. And so I guess I became the next best thing, which was a goalkeeper. Um, but on the right is another image. So, so I could play soccer. There were teams growing. It was becoming this fast growing sport in the 70s. And so my parents put me on a soccer team. And uh, but the soccer team was like almost entirely boys. It was a co-ed team. There were not teams just for girls. And so I was playing mostly with boys and my dad, who has joined the Zoom call here, volunteered to be my coach and, um, and was a great coach. And, um, and, that, and that's actually a common story. I heard Brandy Chastain say the same thing. Like, you know, growing up, it was a lot of like dads, like, okay, our girl wants to play. We're going to get her playing. And this is how. So, um, but this was a, a, on the right, a magazine cover just from our local Pittsburgh neighborhood or whatever um, community. And um, so anyway, but so that was girls sports in the 70s and early 80s. Um, 
no football and co-ed soccer. Um, Pele was the only professional soccer player I'd ever heard of. And so I picked number 10 because that was his number. I'd never heard of any uh, women soccer players. So anyway, so that was my early beginnings. But then um, as as time went on and then we moved to Cincinnati, which actually did have a, um, a little more advanced uh, girls soccer program, and they've continued to have a strong club pr program. So we moved to Cincinnati and I joined a team <clears throat> In 1983, it was a club traveling team called the Cardinals. So I'm going to read now from a few pages of the opening chapter of my book where I reflect on those experiences a little bit. Mr. Ryan's video begins with a still shot, one of dozens of team photos we'll take over the years. Our uniforms have sashes like we're all Miss America. I'm in the middle in blue, the keeper. Our team was the 1971 Cardinals, named for Ohio's state bird and the year we were all born. We spent the 1980s traveling in a flock to soccer tournaments. A flock of Cardinals is called a radiance, and we were radiant. Every tournament we touched turned to gold. Mr. Ryan, a cyborg in cutoff jeans, recorded it all. In 1987, we competed in the U.S. Girls Nationals Tournament in Seattle. I was 16. My hair suffered from a combination of hairspray and sun in. Seattle was as far from Ohio as I'd ever been. The top four teams in the country were there, California, Texas, New York, and us, Ohio. Everything was fancy. My teammates and I felt important because people other than Mr. Ryan filmed our games and interviewed us two at a time. Who will be the first to get pregnant, they asked. Who will be the first to get married? Who will have the most kids? Um, these are the questions they asked the best girls soccer players in the nation. Not one of us said, are these the same questions you asked the boys teams? Maybe the questions weren't so far off. One of my teammates got pregnant the next year and another the year after that. I was about to start dating the guy I would eventually marry and divorce. Most of us became teachers, nurses, stay-at-home moms. But it makes me wonder, can different questions conjure different futures? So what if they had asked, who will be the first to play on the US women's national team? How many gold medals do you want to win? Who will be the first woman president? But in 1987, there was no Women's World Cup, no women's soccer in the Olympics. We'd never heard of a US women's national team and we still haven't had a woman president. This is a table of contents for the book uh, where I use uh, you know, team uniforms as the uh, chapter headers. And I'm thinking at different points about my, my own life, as well as about some different points in um, soccer history. Um, but what I wanted to say now was, so growing up when I was in high school um, and playing on this traveling team, 
I, I was a three sport athlete in high school, in addition to the traveling team. And I just assumed that my interest as like a sporty girl and, and all that I was doing in sports came from, you know, my dad, who had also been a three sport athlete and who coached my team and took me out and taught me how to throw a football and hit a baseball and shoot a basketball. And um, so I just assumed that was that was why I was doing all of these sports. But of course, there's a secondary reason for that, because if there's no sports teams for me to play on, I can't play. So yes, I wanted to play because of help from my dad, but there had to be teams for me to play on. And of course, the reason that there were teams for me to play on in the 1980s was Title IX of the Education Amendments Act of 1972. So Title IX is only 37 words, and I'm just going to go ahead and read them because it's important for everybody to know. Um, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And uh, Billie Jean King has talked recently about how that phrase or activity, any education program or activity, was really what opened it up for Title IX to have such an impact in women's sports. Um, and and I talk in the book about Bernice Sandler, who's known about the known as the godmother of Title IX, and her experiences being discriminated against in higher education, and how it led her to begin the work that led to Title IX. And um, basically, she was just about to get her doctorate, and there was like seven positions open at her university, and she wasn't being consult uh, considered for any of them. And so she asked a male colleague, like, why aren't I being considered for these jobs? And he says to her, let's face it, you come on too strong for a woman. And she said in a when she later wrote about Title IX, I did not know that those words would change my life and the lives of millions of women and girls because they would ultimately lead to Title IX. She says, instead, I went home and cried. But after she cried, she started reading and she started, you know, putting together all of these materials to show how widely women were discriminated against in higher ed. And um, so eventually she then, you know, worked with a number of other women and women politicians and Senator Birch Bayh, and they were able to get Title IX passed in 1972. Um, now, they had no idea that Title IX would have the impact that it did. Um, they said, um, like Birch Bayh said, I had no idea it would have this impact. Representative Edith Green said, I never even played sports. Representative Patsy Mink said, we had no idea its most visible impact would be on athletics. And that's um, Bernie Sandler at the bottom saying, I remember saying, isn't this great? Girls will have more activities at field day. But in fact, Title IX would change everything. And these are just some quotes from Ms. Magazine from a couple of years ago, saying Title IX claims World Cups and Olympic gold medals as part of its legacy. Um, since Title IX, female athletic participation has exploded by 1,063%. And in 1971, when I was born, there were 293,000 girls in high school sports. And in 2019, that was up to 3,400,000. So it had a huge, huge impact. Um, and I'm, I'll trace that in a few other stages of my slides here. Um, so now thinking about me becoming a goalkeeper, um, 
so I talked about how I like probably wouldn't have become a goalkeeper, but I can't think of a position more suited to me. It was when I was uh, 12 years old and joined that club team that I became a goalkeeper. Um, I was a five foot eight sixth grader, uh, sixth grader, and I had I had been really pretty good on the field playing as uh, a left wing, but. By then I was a little bit slower, but I was pretty good with my hands and I'd started playing basketball and they were like, we will take you if you will be a goalkeeper. So here's where I think in this in these next couple of pages I'm going to read. I'm thinking a little bit about that connection between being a goalkeeper and being a writer and then also going a little bit back into some history of a little bit of history of um, football soccer. So I talk about this article um, about goalkeepers and writers, and um, the author Irwin admits that he loved being a goalie, and he argues there's a connection between, and this is his quote, being a writer and being a goalkeeper. He says, it is a very individual position, the loneliest, most isolated on the pitch. And he says, there are only a handful of well-known writers who have played competitive football, and every one of them played as a goalkeeper. And then I also like to point out that every one of them was also a man. Two of the best known writers who were goalkeepers are Albert Camus and Vladimir Nabokov. And there's Camus, the goalkeeper in front, saying uh, one of his famous quotes, and I'm sure all of you here know, all that I know most surely about morality and obligations I owe to football. And Nabokov, in his mem memoir, Speak Memory, says, I was crazy about goalkeeping. That gallant art had always been surrounded with a halo of singular glamour. So like Nabokov and Camus, I was a goalkeeper who wanted to be a writer. Unlike them, I was a girl. So humans have played a form of football for ever. The Chinese played it, the ancient Greeks, the Aztecs, medieval knights. Shakespeare referenced it in King Lear saying, you base football player. Native American men and women played it. And I got some of that from Brian Bunk, who I saw uh, enter in the here. But it wasn't until 1871 that the goalkeeper became an official position. Nabokov loved the mystique of the keeper. He said that he is the lone eagle, the man of mystery, the last defender. But not everyone shared his enthusiasm. Eduardo Galliano, who wrote Soccer in Sun and Shadow, says the striker sparks delight and the goalkeeper, a wet blanket, snuffs it out. Women's soccer, as we know, it began in 1881 as ladies football, and it began with a goalkeeper. Helen Matthews was a Scottish suffragist who organized the first public matches between Scotland and England. She gave herself the pseudonym Mrs. Graham, how did she know to conceal her identity? Had she learned from her suffrage work to expect violence when women challenged the status quo? Indeed, the players had a troubling, troubling reception in the papers and on the pitch. They faced condescension, mockery, critiques of their play and clothing, body jeers and mob violence. And so these are just some excerpts on the right from an article from the Manchester Guardian describing the play. And I excerpted some of the phrases, um, you know, mocking them with the quotes, a ladies football match. The costume is neither graceful nor becoming. Um, a crowd of youths were there. It was boisterous. And then mocking the play as if kicking a ball about the field can be so described. 
Um, and ultimately there was a rush, a mob, rough treatment, clamor, um, and the women had to be driven away to safety. So after two months, play ended. Um, but for me, play, uh, and play actually for me ended after I was done with high school. I did not play my freshman year of college. Um, but then, a um, little transition here. One thing Camus said he learned from being a goalkeeper is that a ball never arrives from the direction you expected it. And for me, I got an unexpected phone call uh, after my first year of college. Basically, I won't read it all, but um, being recruited to play at Xavier University. And what I do remember from that phone call is the, my future coach saying, can you touch your toes? And me saying yes, and like actually bending down and doing it while I was on the phone. And he says, good, not all tall girls can. I'm the new women's soccer coach. I want you to be my keeper. So you can probably find me there in the back middle. So here I am um, at Xavier University, and I, um, I am a keeper there from 1990 to 1993. And this is, you know, this, these are the like early next level years of, of women's sports and soccer, and things are really starting to grow. And, um, and I want to call to your attention number four in the front um, on the, on the, uh, three in from the left side. Um, that is my teammate, Laura Wambach. And, and so I want to talk about like two experiences that I had um, at that time that kind of connected me with future soccer fame. So there is my teammate, Laura Wambach. And I um, remember one weekend we had games up in Rochester, New York, and we were invited to the Wambach family home for a team spaghetti dinner. And we, we all arrive and we get introduced to all of the Wambach family, um, including uh, a younger sibling who just goes like running through the dining room and out the door to go play. And my teammate, Laura, says, oh, that's Abby. She's so good at soccer that she only plays on boys teams. So basically she was saying she was the, Laura was saying she's the best of all of us. And, um, and of course she, this was Abby Wambach at age 11. Um, and then around the same time, we um, played at the Cornell In Invitational against UMass Amherst, and their goalkeeper was Brianna Scurry. And of course, she would go on to be the keeper for the U.S. Women's National Team and the first Black woman and first goalkeeper, woman goalkeeper inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Um, so, you know, I have these experiences. I don't think much about them at the time. And as I say in the book, like I it's, I could have never known that they would go on to this sort of fame, to go on to win Olympic gold medals, to win, um, to be World Cup champions. And part of that is not just because I couldn't tell the future or not because they weren't any good or whatever, but um, because literally in the early 90s, there was no women's um, soccer in the Olympics and there was no women's World Cup. And so like that, the idea of that just like wouldn't have even dawned on me. And so, as I say in the book, here's Julie Foudy now saying, actually, the first World Cup is, in, is next month in China. I'll be playing in it. So, in fact, the first World Cup was happening in 1991. It was Women's World Cup. It was not called that. 
Um, and it didn't come till that didn't come till later. And, and we honestly, it wasn't really on our radar. Um, I've asked my former teammates, like, did you all know that the World Cup was going on? And they were like, no. So it wasn't really on our radar. And in fact, you know, then she returned from China and her Stanford professor apparently was like, you won the World Cup? Great. Here's your human biology exam. Um, at this time, Anson Durance is building, um, you know, his legacy, well, I mean, his kingdom really at UNC. And he was really seeing the importance of women's soccer, women's collegiate soccer and collegiate sports programs as professionalizing. And um, because all of these things, you know, the coaches, uniforms, travel were paid for by the university. And I felt like that was so true. It felt like it felt like such a much more professional um, experience for me than, you know, when um, even playing on my travel team, which we played at high levels, but it was still kind of like, you know, the parents had to organize everything and it just felt more professional to have the university do it. Um, by then, Title IX has been around for 20 years. I've never heard of it. None of my teammates had heard of it, but um, but it was on our side, and and as and programs were continuing to grow, and I just think think it's totally striking that from 1990 to 93, the four years I was at Xavier, 50 new Division One, not even you know across all divisions, but Division One NCAA women's soccer programs were added. But I graduate from college and um, hang up my goalie gloves, as it were, and get married. And then the next thing I know, I'm pregnant. So it's 1996. And um, that year was an election year with this newly named constituency, the soccer mom. And so like I have in the background typed just some lines from um, an article by William Sapphire in 1996 in the 1996 New York Times, calling it the year of the soccer mom. Um, and who is the soccer mom? Does she play soccer? No, um, there are at least a million soccer moms. So I think of this as an interesting transitional space because later I will become a soccer mom. And the answer to does she play soccer is often yes. So thinking about different generations, even of soccer moms. Um, but anyway, in this moment, um, I was no longer a soccer player, and but I was not yet a mom. I was as close as one could be to both and as far away as one could be. So I was almost a mom and not a soccer player. Also in 1996, was the first year that women's soccer was an Olympic sport. Um, and I have my little asterisk, asterisk saying that men's soccer, of course, have been part of the Olympics for 96 years, since 1900. Um, there are more than 76,000 spectators at the gold medal match of the Atlanta Games, which is amazing, but double asterisks. It was not aired on live TV. Um, and prior to the games, the US women's team was offered a bonus if they won a gold medal, which they did. But the problem was the men's team was offered a bonus if they won any medal, which they did not. So this is like, you know, as soon as like women's soccer is taking off and um, gaining momentum, they're already fighting those equal pay battles. Um, so they're like, well, what do we do? So they consulted the OG, Billie Jean King, um, and she told them, you just don't play. That's the only leverage you have. You make the money and you have to say no. Right, she had fought these same battles in the 1970s. Um, so that's what they did. Julie Foudy, Mia Hamm, Brianna Scurry, and others boycotted training camp until the Federation compromised. 
So as I say, they learned that the fight for equal pay is a team sport too. So then women's soccer, like now it's really getting some good momentum. We had a great year in Atlanta in 1996. Now in 1999, the Women's World Cup is going to be held on American soil. And um, and that was you know hugely exciting. But um, as Caitlin Murray has said in her book on the national team, um, the media devoted as much attention to the U.S. women's national team's looks as to its play. So these are some of the headlines that are all about sex appeal, how they look good, the babe factor, all of this kind of thing. And I, I juxtapose these with this postcard um, from the late 1890s, where, you know, here's a woman footballer uh, described as a fine all-around player and these guys gawking at her. So, you know, a hundred years difference and there's very little difference. Um, here's the uh, World Cup Barbie that was endorsed by Mia Hamm, um, which has which has its own kind of, you know, strange interplay of like Barbie's role herself as sort of a sex symbol, but now, you know, we'll make her a, a World Cup rep. Um, as I say here on the bottom right, one columnist even claimed that the Women's World Cup was played more like the talent competition in the Miss America pageant than a sporting event. And I talk about the Miss America pageant a couple times in the book and how I like wished that I could be on the Miss America, um, be in the Miss America pageant, but how my only talent was diving for soccer balls. So I didn't really think I could be in it. Um, but anyway, so thinking about this, this line of the World Cup being played like um, the town competition in the Miss America pageant, um, I drew this picture of the winner of the 1999 Miss America pageant. And of course, the winning goal scorer of the 1999 World Cup. And I just love these two pictures, like these two images side by side. The fact that they're both wearing black, it was just like, you know, I couldn't have like asked for a better juxtaposition. But I mean, those, the body posture, the, um, I don't know, the muscles, the strength in Brandy Chastain, just like, oh, I just love that image. And of course, it was um, everywhere. And it was, it has continued to be everywhere. I'm not gonna read this page, but these are just some other images of um, conscious and perhaps unconscious imitators. I don't know if the guy at the bottom meant it, but I think he did. Um, but Will Farrell, and then this other guy at one of the women's um, games. So, but you don't have Brandy Chastain um, scoring the game winning goal if, Brianna Scurry doesn't save a PK in the finals um, before that. And so I write a little bit about her too and her story of how, you know, she just said, I gotta, I've got to stop one goal. And she envisioned herself getting that save and then she called it before it happened. This is the one she told herself as she set her stance. Um, so then fast forward a little bit. I'm I by now have a young daughter and I've become a soccer mom myself. And I'm now in graduate school getting my PhD at the University of Cincinnati. And, um, and now in 2004, so we've had all of these great strides, but the president of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, 
told an interviewer, come on, let's get women to play in more feminine garb, in tighter shorts, for example, like in volleyball. Beautiful women play football nowadays. Excuse me for saying so. And excuse you, I will not, sir. Here's me in 2004 as a coach. Um, and there's my daughter and there's her team. And so just thinking of like that kind of way of thinking about women in 2004 and the way that we were trying to like raise these young girls and teach them how to play um, just feels like this stark contrast. Um, so finally, I'm, I'm also like kind of tuning back into women's soccer after a while in these years. And, um, and I turn on the TV one day, you know, I'm watching the women's uh, national team. And as I say, it didn't take long to spot a name that I recognized. And that's an image of me down at the bottom. And this is literally what I thought, huh, what are the chances someone has the last name as my old teammate? And then I'm like, wait for it, because it actually took me a minute to realize that this Abby Wambach person was not just someone with the same last name as my former teammate, but was, in fact, the younger sister of my gregarious goal scoring and guitar playing teammate whom I had met all those years ago. And you have to imagine that, like, meeting someone's younger sister like 20 years earlier or 15 years earlier is not something you remember. You know, it's like I had buried that memory and then I'm watching this, the television and I'm going like, well, I'm back. And I, and I see Abby's face and I'm like, man, she looks, she kind of reminds me a lot of, of Laura. And, um, and then that memory came to me that I was like, oh my gosh, like we met her. That was the little girl who went running through the dining room and out to the backyard. Um, so I guess this last part that I want to talk about is that I mentioned that, you know, I thought that my athletic experiences were solely because, you know, like my dad taught me out and took me out and taught me how to play things. Um, and, and I was interested in sports, but in fact, it really required title nine to make all of that happen and to provide the opportunities that I had. Um, but another thing that I thought when I, when I was younger, well, actually, I thought it literally until I was working on this book. Um, I thought that I was really part of the first generation of women to have played competitive soccer. I'd never heard of any women playing soccer before the 1970s, and I just assumed there it, it just hadn't happened. Um, and so it was literally when I was doing research for this book that I found out that obviously what everyone in this room knows that that was not true at all. So I mentioned earlier 1881 um, with like an early attempt to get some women's football play. And then later in 1895, and I have a bigger chapter on this, but just, this is just kind of the conclusion of that chapter. 1895, a woman who called herself Nettie Honeyball, which is very excellent, um, formed the British ladies football club the blfc and you know took a lot of heat for it and got mocked for it and she says there on the left there is nothing farcical about the british ladies football club she says i founded the association late last year with the fixed resolve of proving to the world that women are not the ornamental and useless creatures that men have pictured and um, later she says, I look forward to a time when ladies may sit in parliament and have a voice in the direction of affairs, especially those which concern them most. So 
with that quote, I, I kind of say like for her and the other players at the time, it was always about so much more than football. Um, then fast forward another 20 years almost, and um, actually 22 years, and it's World War II is happening in England, and the men have gone off to war, and the women have taken their places in the factories and munitions plants. And um, as I say on this next slide, on lunch breaks, these ladies started playing football against some of the, the men and boys who were still there and winning. And so in 1917, they became the Dick Kerr ladies. And there were actually many of these teams because they had to play against each other. But um, but I, I write mostly about the Dick Kerr ladies who were ended up being like one of the or the winningest team, um, the, the world champion team at the time. And their story is rather like our a league of their own, right? Where um, so the the men have gone off to war and the women start playing professional baseball, and here the the, the women started playing in charity leagues, or charity matches to raise money. Um, but they were extremely popular, and um, by 1921, throughout the course of that year, over 67 matches they played in front of upwards of 900,000 spectators. Um, but the war was over, the men's league had started back up and the women's teams were drawing larger crowds. Um, so it didn't take long for the backlash and it's predictable focus. So I have the Dick Kerr ladies saying, but what about our bodies and our clothes? These arguments that women have heard forever. Um, and the uh, English FA, the, um, and, and they hired doctors to make claims about women, claimed that the game of suitable of football was quite unsuitable for females. Um, doctors claimed it would inhibit fertility, is inherently dangerous. And there were even comments about females' delicate organisms. Um, so in 1921, the uh, English FA banned women from football and from using any of their facilities. And that ban would last for 50 years. Um, and so they did continue to play, and um, as I think you all have reported at SASH, um, they got creative and played, came to the U.S. to play. They played, and they found there were no women's teams here to play against, so they played against men's teams and went 3-3-3 three, three, and three against men um, in 1922. And, but, and they continued to play um, for actually several decades, but they're playing without FA support. And so interest is waning, crowds are waning, um, and it kind of ultimately like snuffs out the sport and people forget about um, the Dick Kerr ladies and some of the other, um, you know, teams that they were playing against, the, the munitionettes. Um, but it's been exciting to see some recent, uh, a lot of amazing recent work from historians like Gail Newsham or Steve Bolton, who I'm referring to here on this panel on the right, where I say that decades later, a grown man stumbled upon his granny's dusty suitcase and it all tumbled out, the boots, the, the balls, the souvenirs and the stories. Um, and so he knew his granny had been a footballer, but he had no idea what that meant. And he found this, uh, this, this old suitcase in the attic. And so I have a picture of um, Lizzie Ashcroft, that was his grandmother. Um, 
and her teammates. And, you know, there's just pictures of them like traveling the world, like U.S. and France and um, Ireland and playing other women's teams in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Um, but these histories have been basically, you know, forgotten and neglected. And now they're now they're coming back to light, which is really exciting. Um, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm here's a, this wonderful clip just to see them live. And this would be their competition. I'm going to kind of zoom forward a little bit. And here are the Dick Kerr ladies. And as I say in the book, just seeing them, like, it just reminds me of my teams and teammates over the years. And I just, I love their smiles. There's a little clip of them playing. And like, look at those crowds. We can scarcely get that many people to an NWSL match and a keeper. So I'm going to now just show, I think I've got one final slide where everything comes full circle. And um, this is a picture from last October. And um, I was invited to Arizona State University to be part of this Title IX celebration where Brianna Scurry was the uh, keynote um, speaker. And she and I both have our books that came out last year. And, um, and we got to be on this panel with these on the top left, these young younger women, um, current soccer players at Arizona State, one of whom just got drafted to, I think it's the Washington Spirit, um, the one in the back, in the top, second from the left. Um, and so now a professional football player, soccer player. Um, and the cool thing for me was that I realized, like I looked back to my old programs um, of my, my like Xavier soccer programs, to see like, oh, when did I, when did we play against UMass Amherst? And, um, and it was, it was October 4th of 1992. And this event where I'm standing, and so I played against Brianna Scurry on October 4th of 1992. In this event that I'm standing with Brianna Scurry took place on October 4th of 2022, 30 years to the day later, I'm standing with Brianna Scurry and holding up both of our books. So um, that is the end of my presentation, and I look forward to answering questions and talking with you. Well, thank you, Kelsey. That was fantastic. So questions. Anyone want to begin? All right. Well, I, I have one that's, that's uh, very much a, a personal one, and that's you talked about when you were with the Cardinals, that you had to choose between playing high school soccer and between the club team. Yeah. And you chose to play? Nothing. Either, right, right, right. <laughs> but as, as a parent, what, what do you think about that choice now? And what, what do you think about it for soccer in general? In oh my gosh. Did my father direct message you and ask you to ask that? <laughs> no, oh, no, that Lord. was completely in the, 
<laughs> no, I know it's in the book. It's in the book. But well, he he asked me that when I was telling him I was working on the book. He was like, "Well, do you talk about how you got to your senior year and you were about to be like the captain of the varsity team that was going to go to state and you quit?" And I was like, "Yes, Dad, <laughs> I talk about that." Um, yeah, I know. It's I. I mean, it's been interesting for me to like look back on the that decision now to 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 hear his perspective um and 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 to understand it in a way i could not have understood it then and quite a few people have actually asked me about about that particularly for like young for young kids now who you know when you're a teenager i mean what do you know you get you get caught up in other things and um and so you know i say like part of it was like i i was just I had had jaw surgery. Um, and so I was, I actually had been off for a few months anyway. I couldn't play at all. Um, both teams were kind of compromised because, you know, when you just split everybody up and it was just, it was just this temporary law, but law, I mean, rule that they enacted. Um, but it was just kind of in response to like, it, like our team in particular was kind of dominating. We had, we had like five really good players from the Cardinals who are also on the high school team and they wanted to divide that. They felt that this was like unfair somehow. So, um, so yeah, so my one friend stayed and played on high school, my others stayed on Cardinals and I was like, I'm just going to quit. So yeah, when I mentioned that I didn't play my freshman year of of college, I also hadn't played my senior year of high school. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I could say I have regrets. They did end up going to state. Um, they, they are, my high school team lost in state. My sister was there. She was a sophomore at the time and, um, was on the team, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I was burnt out. I know, and this is a common experience. I, and I was particularly, I think, burned out in soccer because um, we were playing in the spring, we were playing in the summer, we were playing in the fall, we were playing in indoor in the winter while I was in also playing basketball and softball in the other seasons. Um, being a goalkeeper was like exciting and special, but it was also kind of isolating. And so I often, you know, I think that sort of contributed to some of my ambivalence about the position. Um, so, yeah, you know, I did what I did. And I, I all I could say is, like, I think these are important conversations to have with young athletes um, and be willing to hear them when they're expressing that they're burnt out and be willing to um, think about uh, you know, options, maybe taking a break can be the best thing. I, when I went back after two years and played at Xavier for four years, those were the best soccer years of my life, you know? So, um, and I felt strong, confident and play, you know, I mean, so um, yeah, we just need to be having the conversations, acknowledge that it happens and sorry, dad. <laughs> Great presentation. I can't wait to get the book. Thank you. Um, my question is about your perspective on the 99 World Cup championship and the impact it had beyond soccer, the social impact. Mm -hmm. At the time, did you have a perspective on it? And looking back now, uh, what's your perspective on it? Yeah. You know, the, the 90s for me are are interesting personally in that I was 
I think I was ready by then to sort of like make a break from um, from my from the sports stuff and really get into my to my writing and also being a, a young mom. And so I I was like following along, but but I know that like some of my former teammates, like they were they were there at the game. You know, I mean, they were like following much more than I, than I was at the time. And, you know, I, I had a two-year-old in the 1999 uh, World Cup. And so things were just a little bit different for me. I was applying to graduate school. Um, so it was, um, it was, of course, on my radar, but not, um, not dominating my life. Um, it was, I mean, just the idea of the soccer mom in, in 1996, like soccer had come of age. Like my mom was a soccer mom in 1986, but no one was talking about it then. And so it was interesting to see to see soccer begin to come of age, have this impact. Um, I love the images. And I think this is where like the huge impact is not just of like Brandy Chastain, you know, like sports bra, you know, celebrating, which was its own kind of like fraught negotiation. I talk about like, that's the same year, like the Victoria's Secret bra was like, you know, had a million dollars of diamonds on it. Like, like we're, we're obsessed with like women's bodies and clothes and like, but to see a woman celebrating a sports victory in her, in her sports bra was, you know, like a real challenge to some ways of thinking. Um, but I was going to say too, the images of just like young girls at the World Cup and like that excitement and, the, and them cheering on, you know, Mia Hamm or the other players, like that then starts a new generation of girls who who don't know only Pele, right? I mean, like I said, that was the only professional football player I knew, uh, soccer football. I, I also want to be Lynn Swan. Um, but um, so, yeah, I think it's just it, like, I, I think that just was like the next level that brought us to the next generation. I, I didn't talk about the Olympics of 96 being called the Title IX Olympics, you know, but that's where we had um, women's soccer, U.S. women's soccer, basketball, softball, and gymnastics all won the team sports. So that's like Title IX coming of age. Then we get to that next level with the World Cup a few years later. Then they introduced to a whole new generation of girls the possibility that you can do this. Um, that's why I talk a lot about like, you know, I couldn't necessarily see some of this because it hadn't happened yet, but then it happened and the other girls can see it. Yeah. I'm kind of rambling as I can start doing no. after a while, but <laughs> no, that's great. I, I I believe 99 women's world cup was not only the greatest, um, women's, uh, sport, sporting social development, but human social developments yeah. of our generation. I have a question for you, Kelsey. Sure. Um, so you say you're a soccer mom now, and um, <laughs> I guess I would like to you to compare and contrast your experience as a youth player and what your kids' experiences are. Yeah. So I have one daughter who is now about to be 26 years old. So my soccer mom official days are over, but I do reflect in the book about, about some of those differences. And um, like I said, you know, I, I think of like my mom's generation as like the original soccer moms, as in before the 1996 soccer mom year. And then in 2004, 2006, um, and just generally the 2000s, when I was coaching my daughter, uh, what was really notable to me was um, 
after mostly coaching with, as you can see in that picture I showed from 2004, mostly coaching with other um, dads, I we moved to South Bend and I volunteered again to coach and I arrived the first day. This was for my daughter's like, you know, sixth grade team at her school. And the other coach showed up and it was another mom. And I was like, okay, well, this is different. And then we get to talking and well, actually first I just see her like moving around with the ball and I'm like, okay, this woman knows how to play soccer, you know? And I see her moving around with the ball and I asked her like, oh, did you play? You must've played. And she's, you know, answered yes. And it turned out she had played at University of Dayton. We realized we played against each other. And I was just like, now this is a new moment in soccer mom history where, you know, the soccer moms have played soccer and not just soccer, but like division one soccer and are now out coaching our daughters. And um, I really just felt like that was, uh, you know, a real transitional moment. Again, I mean, like all these transitional moments that I keep referring to, but um, I also think, I mean, so this is an interesting tension that I have, I think, and um, is worth exploring is, you know, my mom could be um, a soccer mom, like she was a stay-at-home mom, soccer mom, and was able to do a lot of the travel and, um, you know, support my life in soccer, traveling everywhere. But my daughter had a mom who had played soccer, but also like had to, you know, had ambitions to write books and be a professor and do some other things. And so it was, um, so I, I wasn't going to put my whole life into taking my kid around the country playing competitive soccer or or even volleyball. She ended up uh, transitioning to volleyball by high school once you had to choose season wise. Um, so I had her in all these sports and I and I helped coach all the sports and I did we did travel around for her volleyball, but not to the extent of opportunities that I had. Um, and what I see in here now from like, you know, youth leagues and stuff like my brother's got his son in baseball and they're traveling all the time. It seems out of control these days, you know, like um, in terms of like what, not just like the costs and the travel, but all of the, like, I don't know, like all of the stats and social media stuff and what, I don't know, like there's just um, all of the rankings, all of the testing, all of the whatever. It seems pretty intense to me, so I'm kind of glad I dodged that, both for myself and my daughter. Did you have other like thoughts or like things you were behind that question? Well, I, I guess uh, I, I'm in and around the youth soccer industry, if you want to call it that, the industrial complex. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's just interesting to hear how things were versus how things are. Yeah. Um, and we're just trying to make things better in general for kids and their parents and their families. Yeah. Um, and you know, any input is, is helpful, I guess. What, what are some of the problems you feel like you're trying to address? Well, well, like you were saying, it's, it's turned into a, a factory of trying of parents trying to turn their kids into the next Messi or Mbappe and, um, you know, there's, there's poison in the well, uh, with, with some families and with some coaches and some organizations. And there's a lot of great organizations out there, like, uh, one called soccer parenting that's run by sky Eddie, um, it, that are really trying to reinforce, you know, what this is all about trying to make kids, 
and their families uh, keep things in perspective. And uh, it's a challenge. Uh, there's so many parents that are just out there trying to get their kids uh, college scholarships or mm-hmm. um, it's mostly unrealistic, but uh, I guess just trying to get that information out there the best we can um, yeah. is what, what the good folks in the industry are, are doing right now. Yeah, yeah. But it's a battle. No, it, it sounds like it. Um, <clears throat> I hope I hope people are willing to consider like, and maybe this is a given, but you know, D2, D3 college scholarships. I mean, those programs are hungry for um, for players and often have like just really good programs. They're, they may not take you on to be, you know, the next messy, but how many messies are we going to have, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it sounds tough these days. <laughs> so I think Gabe Logan has a question. Kelsey, fantastic talk. It's, it's so enjoyable. Thank you for taking the time to share. Uh, my question has to do with your playing days at Xavier. And of course, it's a very strong traditional Jesuit university. And I was at, uh, I was involved with somebody at SLU at the same time. And it sounds like uh, Xavier might have started a little bit early. And I was wondering, do you know the forces that kind of encouraged that to go? Obviously, it's after Title IX uh, and in the early 90s. What was the driving force that kind of got the program going there, the women's program? I think a lot of it came out of the strength of Cincinnati soccer, the youth soccer and the club soccer there. Um, They really did have more going on. I mean, you know, like I mentioned, moving from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati, like there were there were more girls teams available then and there and at these higher levels than than I knew of in Pittsburgh, even though I know Pittsburgh has its own, you know, high level stuff. But um, that seemed notable. So Cincinnati's just always had kind of a strong base. And so I think that was part of it. I noticed that, so with the field that we played on um, was the original football stadium. So Xavier had a men, a football team from like the early 19 teens up until the early seventies. And they did get rid of their football team right around 1972, 1973. And I was wondering if that like related directly to title nine, but I don't think it did. I looked up some old articles about it and, and it seemed to be more like, I mean, they were, they were, I mean, it was like a cost kind of thing, but it didn't seem like cost. Like we have to um, suddenly make women's programs because title nine wasn't really even beginning, beginning to be enforced until later in the seventies. So, um, but I think, maybe having already gotten rid of a football team, having essentially a football field, having a strong base in Cincinnati, I think that that probably set them up to um, to just choose soccer as what, because pr- presumably in the eighties, when they did start the program, it was partially a compliant, you know, title nine compliance thing, but I think choosing soccer would have been an obvious one for them. Um, and it is for a lot of programs because you can get a lot of girls, you know, you can get 24 people or something on a team and that balances out a lot of, um, you know, smaller men's teams. Um, so I think, I think that is, is part of why. And, but, I, but you're right, because it's interesting that like our program had been around for six or so years by the time I got there. And, and then when I was there, 50 other programs are coming up. So you're right. It was a little early. 
really enjoyable presentation. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. I think Tom Arneson has his hand up there. Tom? This this was great. Um, my, my question, I don't know if it's tough, but it's, it's definitely going to be wrongly worded. Um, but if, if step one was the Dick Kerr ladies and step two is Title IX and the um, you know overall success of the 99 World Cup, what do you think step three is if, if step, th step three hasn't happened yet? Yeah, step three has not happened yet. Um, I think step three is, so statistically women, I, I believe that these stats are correct. Women athletes make up 40% of all athletes. Um, women's uh, like media and programming of their sports make up 4%. And so I think getting women's sports like where we can watch it and see it, where fans go to it and, and don't see it as women's versus men, but just see it as like, oh, there's this great sports event happening. Um, I think I think that's gonna be kind of that next step of just, of just normalizing women's sports as sports um, and not as secondary. And, and within that is then all of the structural issues that have, that have you know, continued along with women's sports. I mean, you know, in 2021, we uh, had what eight of our 10 head coaches of the NWSL, um, you know, were asked to leave, forced out based on sexual assault allegations or sexual harassment and sexual assault. So like we need to we need to reimagine. I mean, and, and a lot of people in women's sports and women's soccer talk about that, like creating new sports models that are not based on men's sports models, um, imagining, you know, different ways of interacting with fan bases, um, you know, different um, structures. And, and I, I don't know, just getting rid of some of the unhealthy, I guess, things that have been, you know, along the way for women's sports that have continued up into the professional level. So I, that's where I see some of that as the next stage. Well, I'll say thank you. Any closing words, Dr. Arvick, that you... Oh, gosh, no, thank you. This was such a... I, I've, I've been doing a number of presentations for the book, but usually my audience is not like soccer fans. So it was fun to kind of like do the soccer angle um, of the book and thinking about, um, yeah, thinking about women's soccer and talking to a group of people interested in the sport and its history. So thank you so much. Personally, thank you very, very much. The history you incorporated into your personal story and your time frame is fantastic. So thank you for speaking with us.